0: So, hello, I'm Dr. Stephen Hassan, and I'm absolutely delighted and honored to have Dr. Tricia Jenkins with me today. Uh, Tricia is a podcaster and professor of film, TV, and digital media at TCU in Fort Worth, Texas. She's the author of three books, including The CIA in Hollywood, which I received, which looks awesome. But more interestingly for my audience, you have a brand new podcast, Tricia, called Worldwide, The Unchosen Church, and it features stories about growing up in the Worldwide Church of God, a doomsday apocalyptic cult. And Dr. Jenkins, is it okay for me to call you, Tricia, for the rest of the interview? Absolutely. Thank you so much. So this cult was founded by...
1: Herbert W. Armstrong.
0: Uh-huh. And what year, approximately?
1: So he starts out as a radio broadcaster in the 1930s, and mm-hmm. he dies in 1986. So for a good 56 years, he's at the helm of the Worldwide Church of God.
0: And this was on ABC on Sunday mornings at some
1: point? Yeah. So one of the th- reasons that Herbert W. Armstrong was successful, I think, as a a cult leader was that he was always a very early media adopter so he was buying radio time for his ministry in the 1930s and he um enters into TV in the 1950s and he does have a television broadcast called The World Tomorrow, which ran actually on Sunday mornings, which is unusual because we were a Sabbatarian church, so we went to church on Saturdays, uh, that ran in the United States anyway. It was syndicated overseas in, in several, several countries, but yes, did run on ABC on Sunday mornings in the United States.
0: Yes. So this is a cult that I've actually helped people with decades ago, and... Um, but uh, this, it's fascinating. I think your production values as well as the content is extremely good. So I'm going to just say publicly, if you were uh, ever in the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Moonies or the Assemblies of God or any number of other Bible-oriented cults, I think you're going to see a lot of parallels. We'll talk about that uh, in this interview. Uh, And uh, so I'm going to just open it up and say, um, so there was a hodgepodge of different beliefs and practices that he adopted. He had no seminary training. His background was in media and marketing (laughs) advertising, right? Well, let's go back and say you were raised in this. So what's it like growing up in apocalyptic because I, I know for sure, uh, you know, like in the Moonies, we thought, you know, the l- l- last days were now, and the end of the world was coming any second. So please share with my, our listeners.
1: Yeah. So one of the things I talk about in the very first episode of my podcast is that as a kid, I never really envisioned myself growing into adulthood. I never envisioned myself getting married or having children or even really going to college. And that was because I was taught really from birth that the end of the world and Armstrong preached that there would be a nuclear World War III in particular. Um, that was coming if not in the next couple of months maybe in the next couple of years and certainly within our lifetime but but the sentiment was that it was coming like in the next five years 10 years as a very conservative estimate so growing up in this I just I never really made future plans in my mind because the idea was that you know why even think about where you're going to go to college because you're going to be in in what we call the place of safety, which is where the chosen of our of our church were going to ride out and be protected during this nuclear World War III. Um, mm-hmm. And then we were going to be turned into spirit beings and we were going to be rulers in the new world order that Christ was going to bring. And so I just never really envisioned myself really living an earthly existence, past my teenage years.
0: Yeah. And speaking as a mental health professional, this is horrible child-rearing practices. And uh, let's go through some of the other things like corporal punishment. One of your podcasts, one of your guests talked about being brutalized, not just spanked.
1: Yeah. So it's, I don't know how widespread physical abuse was in families in the worldwide church of God. It was not present in my family. I will say, though, that the worldwide church of God always preached in uh, always preached that, that spankings were appropriate. Mm. Um, they did have a message, though, that you weren't supposed to spank your children when you were angry. It was mm. supposed to be something that was like a logical punishment rather than one that was hate-filled or Mm -hmm. emotion-filled. However, because a lot of the... So in my second episode, I have an interview with a a guy named Jesse Moskal, whose father was a minister in the Worldwide Church of God. And based on my interviews and my relationships with people who were children of ministers in the Worldwide Church of God, I do think that the physical abuse or at least corporal punishment that went above the level of spanking yeah. was more common. And I think that that really came from this authoritarian mindset that that the church had and filtered its way down to the leadership.
0: Yeah. Spoil, uh, spare the rod, spoil the child. They take that from the Torah, the Jewish scriptures, and they say, we, you know uh, abide by that and if I'm remembering correctly because I've listened to your podcast the first three episodes have now come out when we're doing this interview that uh the the cult also didn't encourage people to go to medical doctors, uh, get psychiatric help if they're feeling depressed. Uh, Share a little bit more about that whole thing.
1: Yeah. So this is one of what I would consider to be the more tragic elements of the Worldwide Church of God. So uh, really all throughout the 60s and the 70s and well into the 80s and 90s, the mindset was that, and, and Herbert W. Armstrong would preach that, You know, doctors don't know why diseases happen. They don't really know how to cure them. Modern medicine is something not to be trusted. And really the best cure for any disease, and that included cancer, was prayer and faith. And also we did something called anointing. So... If you were sick, for instance, you would call on your pastor and he would literally take a cloth and put olive oil on it and say a prayer over it and send it to your house or maybe deliver it to you personally. And you would put this anointing cloth on your forehead and that was meant to do the trick.
0: Oh, I've seen many, uh, many people doing that during COVID and uh, you don't need a vaccination. Just have that blessed handkerchief and you'll be protected, and then a lot of people are dying.
1: Yeah, and and that's why I think this is one of the more tragic elements of the church. So, for instance, again, in, the, in that first episode when I talked to Jesse Moskell, he starts out you know, with this really horrific story of his three-year-old sister is diagnosed with leukemia from environmental toxins, and before she reaches her fourth birthday, she dies, and mm. And really one of the the major reasons is that his parents refused to seek medical treatment. And that story um, is far more common in the Worldwide Church of God than you, than you would think. It affected my family as well. So one of the things that I share in my podcast is that, and this is in the 90s, uh, my dad struggled with mental health and, and depression when he was in his late 40s and, and early 50s. And he was really ardent that he didn't want to take antidepressants, and he was not a fan of therapists. And he really tried to cure his depression with natural remedies, with with supplements or with diet. Hmm. And unfortunately, he ended up committing suicide in uh, you know right when I was around nineteen or twenty. I'm
0: so sorry.
1: Thank you. Um, And I and I and I can't help but wonder if. If his fate and and you know my future as well would have been different if we had not been a member of the Worldwide Church of God at the time.
0: Oh, I, I would say guaranteed that it would have been different. And what was one of the points in your podcast was that the cult leader himself would go to doctors, but so the hypocritical aspect, I'm also now thinking of another cult, the Way International, with Victor Paul Whalewell who did the faith healing thing but he went to doctors too and he died of cancer uh himself uh but do you think that maybe Armstrong stole this from Mary Baker Eddy and Christian science
1: yes i think if you look at the teachings of herbert w armstrong and the worldwide church of god he he essentially borrows what i would call like the greatest hits from different religions so just to give you some examples you know like like you know, the, the, the Jews, he borrowed, you know, the old Testament Holy days and dietary restrictions in in eating clean and unclean meats. Um, like the seventh day Adventist, we kept a seventh day Sabbath, uh, certainly like Christian science, we mm-hmm. had a reluctance to rely on medicine and that God was really to be chosen or excuse me, to be called upon for healing. Um, mm-hmm. we even borrowed from the Mormons that, that, our church taught that after the return of Christ, that the the chosen who had been called into the church, and there were only supposed to be one hundred and forty four thousand of us, uh, that after Christ's return, that we would be turned into gods, and we would essentially have our own planets. That, that is the Mormon
0: stuff, yeah. yeah.
1: So he definitely borrowed from from several different religious traditions and the other sort of weird element of Armstrong was he had this belief that was called British Israelism which taught that the lost tribes of Israel when they migrated out of the Middle East. um, He taught that they actually migrated into Western Europe and that they actually became the countries of Western Europe. And he taught this idea that the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, who special promises are made to in the Bible, actually became the people of Britain and then later the U.S. And so um, he argued that if you want to understand why Britain had this amazing empire or why the U.S. has always had you know, a great economy and has been sort of a world power that you could trace that back to this understanding of British Israelism and the promises that God made to these tribes in the Bible. So that was also sort of like a weird tenet that he, that was really central to a lot of what he taught in terms of biblical prophecy.
0: Yeah, call to elitism, that you're chosen, you're special, and I believe you have to be part of the 144,000 and everyone else is going to be toast.
1: Yes. Right. And and as a kid, that, that scared me because I kept always asking my mom, like, how many people are in our church? And she would say, oh, I think there's about, you know, like 120, 150,000. And I was like, 150,000? That's like 10,000 over what we're, su- or 6,000 over what we're supposed to have. Like, why are we spreading the word why are we you know why are we trying to bring more converts in that's just like you're jeopardizing my place in the kingdom like let's let's knock this off let's stop
0: yeah the jehovah's witnesses solved that one with saying everyone else will live forever on planet earth that was how they they try if you weren't part of the elite the elect then the rest of you can stay on earth forever and and never get old um but another parallelism between your former cult and my former cult is uh, the racist teachings about the three sons of Noah and the doctrine of Ham. Uh, would you share a little bit about that? What you learned?
1: Sure. So, um, one of the things, and this is not unique to the Worldwide Church of God. Uh, different denominations of Christian Christianity and Islam and Judaism have all. They all have a version of this, but essentially, there's a story in the Book of Genesis where Noah gets drunk and he passes out, and Noah's son Ham walks into the room and sees quote unquote the nakedness of his father, and he doesn't cover him up, but he goes to tell his brothers, "Hey, like dad's passed out, he's drunk and he's naked," and the sons, his brothers, come in and cover him up, and. For some reason, it's not really explained in the passage. Noah is very upset with Ham. And so Noah, by the way, not God, but Noah curses (laughs) not Ham, but Ham's son, Canaan, and condemns Hmm. Canaan and all of his ancestors to a life of slavery. Now, there's no mention of race in that story. There is... um, yeah, race or skin color is never mentioned. It's not a curse that God makes; it's a curse that Noah makes. But uh, that passage has been used to say, you know, if we look at where, you know, where do races come from? Uh, Ham is meant to be, in this weird biblical interpretation, uh, the father of of African people. And mm-hmm. it's a passage that gets used essentially as an explanation, not just for black skin, but as really a justification for the slavery of black people. Uh, and and our church certainly taught the curse of Ham, and and that was the reason that that slavery existed and why different races existed.
0: Yeah, and you interviewed a a, a former member who's black about what it was like growing up there. Who's obviously he's is very bright and was like talking about, was it the Bible bowl or something where there's a competition of say a little bit about that. <laughs> yeah. uh, that was funny.
1: So we had a very, very active youth program. We had each church area had sports teams, you know, a basketball team and they we would play other congregations. Um, but one of the other activities that we had was what we called Bible baseball tournaments. And um, (laughs) it was literally set up. I'm trying to remember this now. It was literally... So you did it as a team and each question had a point value. So easy ones were a single, really hard ones were a triple. And your team had to answer Bible questions. And it was a lot of like... You know, you had to quote biblical scripture or you had to know the chapter Mm. and verse of something. And you would essentially with each question answered correctly, like hit your team around the bases. And that was how you won. Um, So, yes, he was. So also like so the standout members of a Bible baseball team would compete in an all star championship. And that was just like an individual Competition, and so um, this guy's name. His name is Glenn Washington. He's actually the host of NPR Snap Judgment, which is a really successful podcast. Uh, he was a Bible baseball champion, and and so was I. And so, one of the things that he talks about is, you know, the church was saying, "Well, this is in the Bible, right? You know, it's clear from the Bible that Noah's son Ham is the father of." of African Americans and African people and and he would say no like I'm a bible bull champion I know my bible that is nowhere in the bible so he <laughs> talks about like how he really actually thinks that that whole bible baseball event or program actually sort of planted the seeds of its own destruction because mm-hmm. people did learn the bible and did know what was in it and what wasn't in it and and could then call out authority and say no that's that's not actually there
0: yeah I, 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 so I want to just comment, uh, you're, you're a PhD scholar, author, teacher, obviously incredibly bright. And, uh, you commented that so many of your, uh, fellow former cultists have gone on to achieve really quite a lot. you want to share a few stories?
1: You know, when I look at, so our, church had an accredited university. It was called Ambassador University. We used to have three campuses. By the time I went through the church, we were down to one, and that was in Big Sandy, Texas. Um, When I look at the people that I went to school with and I look at where they are now 20 years later, it is almost uncanny the number of PhDs, professors, lawyers, doctors, entrepreneurs, like highly successful, highly educated people that I really think disproportionately came out of that church. And I would love to be able to say, oh, it was because, you know, I I, I wish there was a common thread that I could link to it. And I don't know what it is, but I will tell you why I think, or at least what I would credit the church with in terms of my own academic success. So um, in our church services, our church services were long. They were two hours. Um, oh, have- that's
0: short. Sorry. In the <laughs> well, world, it felt college, like a
1: long time. <laughs> they go on a
0: lot longer than that. I'm sorry. Continue.
1: No, um, and fair, fair. Um, but so we would we would stand up at the, the beginning of a service. We'd sing three songs. We'd sit down, and there would be a 20 minute sermonette. And these were like lectures, essentially. We'd stand up and sing one song. We'd sit back down, and then for an hour and a half, we would have the sermon. Now, kids. We're not allowed to go to like some kid's room or play with toys on a blanket or, you know, today, like have your phone out. It was, you were going to sit in this chair and you were going to be quiet and you were going to be still and you were going to take notes. So even as a kid, my parents would make this like chart on a piece of paper that said like keywords, like God, kingdom, devil, Satan, Satan. Uh, I don't, you know, the tribulation, something like that. And every time I heard that word, I was meant to put a check in the in the column. Oh. And so, as a kid, very early on, I was trained to listen to essentially very long, boring lectures, <laughs> uh, and 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 you know, pay attention for key concepts and to mark mm-hmm. them down. And so, mm-hmm. I think in some ways that planted the seed of, of being a good student then being able to go to a college class and to sit in a college class for 3 hours and and be able to take good notes and to pay attention for the whole thing because I'd really been trained to do that since I was, you know, 5 or 6.
0: And was it a very misogynistic experience too or men had more power than <clears throat> women? Oh, because the moonies yes. were that way men in the moonies men were subjects and women were objects.
1: Yes. I think that that is also true in the Worldwide Church of God. So um, I actually have an episode coming out tomorrow that has to do with gender and how it functions. And I interview three women. And, and one of the things that they note, and it, so in our services, there was a way to sit. Mm. Men sat on the aisle. And then there was the woman, and then there was the children. Mm. And the reason that men always sat on the aisle is because they were the ones who needed to get up because they had the leadership roles in the service. Mm. They were the ushers. They were the deacons. They were the song leaders. They were the you know people giving the sermonettes or the sermon or giving announcements or an opening and closing prayer. The only leadership role that women had in our church was to be the piano player mm-hmm. or to perhaps perhaps, lead uh, like the, we called them YES lessons. They were like our, our youth educational programming for mm-hmm. like five, six, seven-year-olds.
0: Hmm. Were, uh, were people allowed to go to public school or, or were oh, they yes. homeschooled?
1: Uh, I didn't, some people were homeschooled. I did not know anybody in my local congregation who was homeschooled. And that was also something that was interesting about the church, I think. um, We did not have a compound. So for those of us, so- you know, most of our parents that came from a quote unquote normal world, and they mm-hmm. chose this religion because they were attracted to its ideologies or its sense of community. Or they
0: got deceived.
1: Or they were deceived, absolutely.
0: <laughs> Thinking uh, that Armstrong actually knew the Bible was
1: God's apostle. Yeah, yeah. Um, but for for a second generation members, you know, we were born into this, and mm-hmm. this was our normal but we always recognized that this was not normal because we went to public school and because our church taught that you know traditional holidays like christmas or valentine's day or halloween were pagan holidays that were sinful to celebrate you know that meant you know every time our my elementary school had a halloween party i couldn't like bring a costume and do the little parade and I had to sit in the hallway. I had to sit it out, and I just sat there, you know, longing for that gross little cookie with the with the orange frosting on it. That's so funny. Uh, because I, you know, I couldn't participate in it. And yeah. I, I actually think, you know, people have asked me, like, do you have a hangover from the Worldwide Church of God that's still with you after all of this time? Mm-hmm. And I think I have two. Um, one is that I still will only go to the doctor if it is like. I don't want to say dire, but it's like, I got to be sick a long time to finally get myself to a doctor. I think I'm getting better about it. But like four years ago, I had walking pneumonia. I just thought it was a cold and then I got worse. And then I couldn't walk more than like a thousand feet without having to sit down. Uh, And it took me like three and a half weeks to finally go see a doctor. Mm. And I suffered for a long time. Uh, And then I took this z pack, and then it, you know, went away in like a couple of days and I'm like, man, why did you wait so long? So that's one of the hangovers. So um, can
0: I interrupt you? Yeah, absolutely. To a healing strategy while we're chatting.
1: Absolutely. So
0: the first step in healing or fixing a hangover, I've never heard that expression before, like you were drunk and you have a hangover. Yeah. Or um, the
1: residue, I guess.
0: But uh if you're the first step is just being aware that this element of indoctrination is still functioning. And then you want to ask yourself, what do normal people do? Like people who didn't grow up in a cult. Um, and then you want to go back to when you first got sick but didn't do anything and step back into your younger you and go, oh, this could develop into pneumonia. I should go to a doctor and have, and have them listen to my lungs and get checked out. And in by redoing it, even though historically you know what actually happened, right? But this is a way of rewiring your brain for the future, so that the next time if you get ill, you automatically call the doctor and not delay, 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 and um, and also set a good role model for your. You, you have a child, I believe, or I do. It, I've huh? got a daughter. Yeah, Uh, that's that's wonderful. So the idea is identifying the triggers of the leftover programming, saying what's normal or what's healthy or how do I really want to act? Go back in your mind to that earlier scene, reprogram it, and then imagine the future where something comes up and you're behaving the way you want to behave. It's amazing how fast the human mind can be rewired. And that's what I teach with my clients. So I just wanted to share that with you because there's no need to keep re- reprogramming the dysfunctional thing from your childhood. Well, let's go on to the other one that you were going to talk about.
1: <laughs> so, Thank the you. other one I'm like less excited to say out loud, but I just believe in being truthful and authentic. So, uh, I think, you know, growing up in this church where we were the oddballs out in public school, um, I was taught to kind of wear that oddness as a, a badge of honor, right? Because mm-hmm. it meant that I was special and that I was chosen and that I was set apart. And never, and this is generational, but it's also, it also has to do with my religious upbringing. There was never, ever, ever a sense that the rest of the group or the rest of society should ever make any accommodations to me. So yeah, I can't celebrate Halloween. I've got to sit in the hall while this party is going on. But there was never any expectation that that party shouldn't happen, right? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. there was this sense of, yeah, I can't do this, but, but there's a good reason why I can't do this and people don't need to accommodate me right I, th- I think that that mentality is still with me in some ways I think Gen Z is now much more sensitive and sympathetic to people who are on the margins and, and in some ways that is a wonderful and a very beautiful thing um but there's still a part of me that struggles with accommodating um, what I would see as like minority interest groups um, and I don't mean this like in a in a broad sense of you know like race relations in the United States but but something like if you have a if you have a birthday party and there's a kid who can't eat gluten, right? A a lot of parents now will make a cake that is gluten-free so that kid can participate like all of the other children. Mm -hmm. And I still have this mentality of, but you're the one with the gluten allergy. So, you know, bring your own piece of cake or uh, Mm -hmm. like, I don't know what I want to say, but like it just, in my mind, the way I grew up, there was no expectation that the rest of the group should ever accommodate me and my specialness. And, and, and I'm still struggling with that.
0: So if I may, um, uh, we all carry baggage from our childhood. And those people that I've worked with who were born or raised in an authoritarian cult, like you were, uh, those, for lack of a better way of saying it, those child parts are still operational. But the strategy is, and there are a number of ones, and I always just tell my clients, here, here are some different strategies, pick one that works for you, try it out. And if it doesn't, I can tweak it and give you some other strategies. But a simple one would be to imagine your time traveling back you know, a la Star Trek or one of these sci-fi shows, you time travel back to the younger Trisha, and you say, Honey, I'm from the future. We're gonna be a doctor and teach at a university and write books. And you know what? Armstrong isn't the apostle. <laughs> the world's not gonna end. You're gonna be, you're gonna be a parent, you're gonna travel the world, you're gonna have this and that and interact with that child part so that you have that connection and bring that part into the now because the now is who you are today if you're following me. And um, and I've done so many cases where people have left the cult but their cult identity was still on automatic pilot. And I again, I encourage people be in your body, be in the present, and heal your younger you. And even go back and exit counsel yourself, your younger self, and explain the bite model of authoritarian control and the influence continuum, that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, I think that's really great advice. And one of the things that I found so rewarding about doing this podcast is that I've literally gotten, you know, we just premiered last week, probably over 100 messages from people who said, I. Th- I was pretty sure that I had left this all behind, like 20. So Armstrongism still exists in some forms today. It's still very much alive and well. Um, But a lot of people exited in the 1990s. And and, I want
0: you to tell the story of how that came about, but continue.
1: But, But they've emailed me and said, I really thought I put this all behind me. Like I moved on and I just kind of forgot about it. But now that I'm listening to this podcast, I'm realizing that there are some things that I didn't fully process, that I didn't fully... Work through, and mm-hmm. they're finding the podcast to be therapeutic, and that is that's the most wonderful like message that I could receive. So it's incredible.
0: Very it's a it's a it's a great contribution, but also for yourself as well. Uh, it, it's it's just incredibly marvelous. Let's let's take a moment to go back to the history. So Herbert W. started it. Then what happened? and.
1: I will try to tell this in a succinct way. Um, oh, you
0: did a great job on the podcast. So <laughs> we have a few minutes.
1: So Herbert W. Armstrong, yes, he is the, the head honcho show of the he Worldwide was. Church of God. He had a son who was actually called the man with the golden throat. He was the most popular um, televangelist in in American culture for a while. His name was Garner Ted. But Garner Ted was a playboy. Uh, He had a lot of affairs. Um, He also proved to be a threat to his dad. So he was thought to be heir apparent, but he and his dad had a falling out. And Garner Ted ends up starting his own church in Tyler, Texas. So what happens is that Armstrong knows that he is is sick. He's he's well up in his years. I can't remember how old he is when he dies, but it's like close to 90, maybe his Mm. late 80s. Um, And... He, ne- he knows that he needs to pick a successor. Um, there's a great book by David Barrett, who is a PhD, actually did his dissertation on the Worldwide Church of God and some of the splinter groups that come out of it. Um, but he, he basically like, picks a successor, tells you know, his council of elders, this is who it is. And then he would change his mind like four weeks later. And, oh, no, 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 that's not him. It's, it's this other person. And then four weeks would go by and he'd change his mind again. Mm -hmm. Um, Long and the short of it is he picks a man named Joseph W. Dukatj, who is a son of Czechoslovakian immigrants. He was a pastor in the Worldwide Church of God. And that is who he had picked at that moment when he actually died. Mm -hmm. So he transfers the title of the pastor general of the Worldwide Church of God to Dukatj. Interestingly, he had given himself the title of apostle and he refused to transfer it to Joseph W. Dukatj uh Dikot's just appoints himself apostle anyway um uh, but what i think is really interesting about this transfer of power is the world church of god does something that it's not unprecedented but it's not usual mm-hmm. 8 years into dekoch's leadership he gives a very famous sermon in 1994 which i was actually sitting in the fourth row for because he mm. gave it at ambassador university Um, and, and church members will now refer to it as the changes sermon, because what he did in that sermon is he actually kind of de-radicalized the worldwide church of God. He said, you know what, We've only been looking at Old Testament. We haven't been looking at New Testament. Uh, we don't think that we actually need to do all of these things that we said you need to do in order to be saved. We were very much, you earned your salvation. It was not by grace or it was not by faith. It you was earned, by works,
0: in other yes, words.
1: Yeah. And, and those works were you give 10% of your income, you don't eat pork, you don't eat shellfish, you don't celebrate Halloween, you don't celebrate Christmas. Um, A whole, you know, a whole host of rules that you had to follow in order to be saved. Joseph Tkach says, you know what, I think we've been wrong. And he basically starts to steer the church really in mainstream Protestant evangelical Christianity. What happens is half the church, it doesn't happen instantaneously, but they say, huh, you know what? I actually think Takach is kind of making good sense. We really haven't been looking at the New Testament and there really hasn't been an emphasis on Jesus. And, you know, Jesus is such an important part of Christianity in the New Testament and, and they adopt the new teachings. And some of them continue to attend Worldwide Church of God as it becomes more mainstream. But there were so few congregations that, that people had to drive like a long way to get to church mm. services. And so over time, you know, maybe four or five years, It was like, well, we can go anywhere and still be saved, so let's just go to the local Methodist church down the road. Um, The other thing that happened, though, is that the other half said, oh, screw you, false prophet. You are not the true, you know, apostle of God. The purists,
0: the fundamentalists. Yes.
1: Yes. And so they broke away and they started their own churches. And those churches still very much exist today. They're the United Church of God, the United Church of God Worldwide Associated, the Philadelphia Church of God, the Restored Church of God. There was a power struggle in that, you know, initial split, and so then you had splinters after the splinter. Um, but, it, but absolutely, Armstrongism still very much exists today.
0: Yeah. So, tell what was your moment where you were like, I'm, um, I'm. Um, I'm exiting. I'm out. (laughs) Yeah.
1: People ask me that a lot. And I would, I usually point to three things that changed my trajectory. Mm -hmm. One is, so when, when the gives this changes sermon, I am, I think 18, 19 years old. I'm a freshman in college. And I think I kind of had this moment of, wait a second this guy, Herbert Armstrong, that you have taught me is infallible and has always been infallible. Now you're saying he was fallible. And I went, if that was wrong, what else might be wrong? Mm. And it sent me down this questioning of not just the worldwide church of God, but really of Christianity and religion much more broadly. Mm -hmm. The second thing that happens is, like I mentioned earlier, my dad ends up committing suicide. And I always remember the church preaching, you know, God will never give you anything that you can't handle. Mm. And I looked around and said, "Mm -mm, but people commit suicide every day. That doesn't feel right. That doesn't feel right. Authentic to me. Hmm. So that also sent me down a, a questioning path. And then the third thing that happens is after I graduate from college, the first thing that I did is I moved to Bangkok, Thailand. Uh, and I taught English as a second language and an international school there. And all of a sudden now I'm surrounded by Buddhists. And I come to understand these Buddhists as, you know, incredibly lovely, kind, wonderful people. And I'm asking myself, you know, do I really believe that that all of these people that I know? are going to burn in the lake of fire because they don't accept Jesus as their personal savior. And I came to understand religion as very geographically centered, that you mm. that you believe what the people around you believe and, mm. and, and what you believe is largely determined by where you were born and where you grow up. So yeah. international travel became something that that also sort of broadened my mind and, and eventually I ended up leaving. Uh, I, I graduated from ambassador university. I was the last graduating class out. The university closed in 1997, partly because in the changes, uh, all the people who were like, yes, this makes good sense. We don't need to give 10% of our tithes anymore. The church lost a ton of money and our university never had an endowment. So they closed the university. Um, so I, I did finish my degree there. I graduated in 1997. I moved to Bangkok in 1998. And I would say after 1998, 1999, I never attended another service.
0: Mm-hmm. So I'm going to offer another little healing tip for, for people, especially who were born or raised in cults. Uh, is to pay attention to language. So I think Scientology may be the hardest in terms of language because they literally have their own dictionary. And part of the cult is you should do study tech. And if you don't agree with something or you space out, it means you passed a word you don't understand. So you look it up in Hubbardese and you indoctrinate yourself. But the, the point I want to comment and what I was listening to is you said our university versus their university. True. Right? True. Because you want to be in the present and you want to talk about the cult back there, even though there are splinter groups and other people who are you know, walking around with uh, the, the, the program Beliefs. Uh, that were concocted and stolen from a variety of other authoritarian cults and religions. Um, but again, it comes back to, um, yeah, that was the younger me, I am out. So I, when I talk about the Moonies, it was they, or I say when I was in the Moonies, this is what we felt, or this is what we taught, etc. By the way, the Moonies had an accredited university, also the University of Connecticut Bridgeport. Uh, the T.Mers still have an accredited university in Fairfield, Iowa, Maharishi, whatever university. Um, so, but anyway, let's let's. Uh, what do I want to say next? Because this is so interesting and so fascinating. So you 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 were in the last graduating. Uh, class of ambassador, then what? what? How did you decide what the next, was that when you went to Thailand to just get a change? And yeah. were you teaching over there or you were? Uh huh.
1: I did, it was my first job. I tell my students now, if you are a fluent English speaker, you never have to worry about being unemployed so long as you're willing to travel. There was good money to be had in, in teaching English overseas. After I left Bangkok, I spent a year Uh, in Germany as well. And and actually, even that trajectory comes out of the Worldwide Church of God. So our church literally was worldwide. It operated in about 70 countries, to my understanding. The bulk of them were in the United States and the UK and Australia. Um, But that meant, because we only had one university, that people from all over the world who wanted to be educated at God's one true college, uh, (laughs) came to, of all places, Big Sandy, Texas, which is, it has a population of like a thousand people. It is in Mm. rural East Texas. So it's this very unlikely place to have this like cosmopolitan hub, but I think about a third of our student body was from overseas, which meant that I had I made friends from India, from Australia, from New Zealand, from Canada. In fact, I just went on vacation last week with my roommate from Ambassador, and she's Canadian, and and we had traveled overseas, uh, and so that you know I was born and raised in a very small rural West Michigan town. I think my school was like 99% white. Mm. Um, and so when I came to Ambassador, it was a much more multicultural, diverse environment that I had ever been in before. Mm-hmm. And those relationships actually really cultivated in me a curiosity and a love for international travel. And, and because I still have so many friends that I went to Ambassador with, or I was part of this church with, that I I feel like I could go to at any continent, I'm thinking about it, if this is really true, I could go to any continent except Antarctica and have somebody there that I could stay with. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's one of the really wonderful things that came out of that experience.
0: So just for clarification, um, with the Moonies, if somebody leaves the Moonies, they're going to hell because they they're do not they not following God's will, etc. cetera. And if you're a member in good standing, aside from trying to recruit the person back in, you are not encouraged to have any type of social interaction. So my question is all these folks that you're saying I could stay with anybody are they all out also that you're talking about? or are there any true believers that's still are willing to be friends with you?
1: I still have friends who are in one of the splinter groups. They are all domestically located though. I think part of it, so definitely in the in the 70s, 80s and 90s, if you left the church, or you questioned the church, or you failed to follow its rules, you would probably be disfellowshipped. And certainly people were not encouraged to talk to you or to associate with you. But I think because of this weird time that I came through the church and that I graduated you know, three years after that changes sermon was given, there was just a lot of disarray in the church. And people were figuring out you know, what side they were going to land on. And so I think a lot of that... I don't, I don't know what the word that I want is, but this like very, very black and white thinking that had become a little bit more gray by then. That's um, a good way of saying it. <laughs> yeah. And, and now I, most of the people that I am friends with are, are no longer a part of either the WCG or one of the splinter groups.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so I I want to switch, if I may, to talking about. You've written several books, but this one really intrigued me. Um, And and you said, warning, Steve, it's academic, (laughs) you know. But please tell me how you came to get interested in this and what you learn. Yeah,
1: so um, I have always been a lover of spy. Films, you know, love James Bond, love the Jason Bourne trilogy, loved spy history, loved the, you know, the history of intelligence organizations. Um, And so I did my dissertation on the way that gender and nationalism intersected in American spy television series. And over the course of, of writing that dissertation, I came across a New York Times article, and it was talking about a show named Alias that came out in 2001, starred Jennifer Garner. I remember and it said, that. I loved that show, um, and it's and it said something to it was like two sentences, and it said the CIA's entertainment liaison office consulted on this series, and I went, what? What is a CIA entertainment liaison office? And so I started googling and I'm looking in the research databases I can't find anything about this program. I can find that the FBI has a program I can find that the Department of Defense has had this program for a long time could not find anything about the CIA So after I graduated like this is my next project. I got to find out what this office is so to give you the short version um, it's, it's useful to compare it to the Department of Defense. So a lot of people don't know this, but the Department of Defense has a very robust entertainment industry liaison office. And, and essentially what, what happens is a filmmaker wants to do something with a battle or it's a war film or whatever, and they need really expensive equipment. They need aircraft carriers, they need <laughs> helicopters, they need submarines. And so they go to the military and they say, hey, we need all this equipment here you guys are offering these for free or cut rate prices. Like, what do we need to do to get on on this action? And they Mm -hmm. say, show us your script. And they read the script and they literally make notes page by page that says, we don't look heroic on page 18. You are going to need to change page 18 if you want our equipment. Um, If you... And there are certain things that are showstoppers for the military, right? So any um, any any mention of like mental health issues, especially uh, PTSD or suicidal thoughts, those will be hmm. they, will, they won't support that. They script. want
0: to portray a very positive image to the public. Yes,
1: absolutely. Um, you know, drug addiction, things, sexual harassment, all of those things will be nixed. Um, so the CIA, what happens? So the CIA is the last major government office to establish one of these programs. And they do it in 1997, and the reason why they do it is twofold. One, the Cold War has ended, and all of a sudden, Congress is talking about, do we really need the CIA anymore? We, you know, It was set up to fight the Soviets, and it was set up to fight communism, but now that threat seems to be over and done with, so do we really need to be spending you know billions of dollars on this organization, or can we just transfer all the intelligence functions to the Department of Defense? Right so they realize a
0: few hundreds of billions of dollars i might add
1: yes and so they 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 panic right and it's like we have to convince the american public that we are still needed and necessary and one of the reason or one of the the ways that they start to do that then is they say we got to start working with film and and tv producers like we've got to start influencing the messages and the ideologies that, that these shows circulate to convince them that there are other threats. It's mm-hmm. not just about communism. And, and I don't mean to sound crass when I say this, although it is going to sound crass, but 9-11 was actually great for the CIA. In mm-hmm. the sense that it reminded the public that actually, yes, there are threats that are not communist related and we may need intelligence services to, to help thwart some of these threats. So um, that's one thing. And then the other thing that happened in the 90s that, that also was a big public relations disaster for them was the case of Aldrich Ames. He was a CIA mole. Um, he worked in actually, ironically, I'm pretty sure, counterintelligence. Uh, and he was selling out the, the names of Russian assets for millions of dollars that the Russians were paying him. It took the CIA a very long time to figure out who he was. And then when he was finally unmasked, all of the damage that he had done to intelligence services and, and how long it took to uncover him was a big public relations disaster for the CIA. And so they begin to then work with, with Hollywood in order to tell their success stories, to convince the public that, this, that they are a good investment, that they are effective. And that program is, is thriving today.
0: That's so interesting. So the FBI, their top counterintelligence uh, person, Hanson who is an Opus Dei member, a cult that I help people get out of, authoritarian Catholicism, um, was feeding the, uh, our intelligence to the Russians for a really long time. Um, yes. And, I, I, and I, I, I'm I sure you came across the book called The CIA and the Cult of Intelligence by Marchetti and Marx in your research. Yes. When I first saw that, the whole book, it was hardcover, was blacked out. There was an and, and a the, and everything was, and over time, they kept going to judges and winning back what the words were.
1: And that is still a challenge for academics today. You know, a a lot of our information has to come from freedom of information requests. uh, But a lot of times when you get those documents, A, it can take years to get them. And then when they do arrive, half of it can be redacted. And so it's a very frustrating process.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I can't help but say, since you're such a fan of Jason Bourne uh, and and others, you know these spy things. He he was it was a version of MK Ultra, uh, you know, mind control to create the the perfect assassin uh, who would be completely obedient and have all these uh, extra abilities. Um, and what I learned after my exit from the Moonies, I was a whistleblower I gave all the internal documents I had over to a congressional subcommittee investigation and in in, in this period of time it was in the mid 70s um, it was called Korea Gate at the time and the Moonies were l- named as covert operatives uh, for the Korean CIA and they actually interviewed the founder of the Korean CIA who quote, said he organized and utilized the unification church my former cult for use as a political tool and so the history is i understand that is the cia helped up set up the korean cia and they were saying you know north korea is brainwashing people there have been two unsuccessful coups in south korea korea is really important to us we need to create our proxy group to brainwash dissidents in south korea uh, so that they don't you know, cause trouble. And it was only in that frame that the Moonies were then later brought to the US during Watergate to defend Nixon. And I fasted for Nixon as a Mooney, uh, etc. And of course, the Mooney set up the Washington Times newspaper that lost money for decades. And where was that money coming from? Hmm, let me f- figure that one out. So anyway, there's a whole uh, r- really nefarious uh, history uh, to take into account. I mean, I, I do believe we need covert, you know, agents and spies, etc. But um, there needs to be some checks and balances on this. Uh, such a high potential abuse of power. And uh, so, but wh- I wanted to say the MK Ultra thing because uh, when I wrote the Cult of Trump. Uh, a lot of those believers are against the deep state, which they claim is the CIA, etc. And they may not realize that I'm actually a survivor of one of those mind control programs because I was trained to kill on command or die on command. And that's part of what motivates me so passionately to this day because I'm a nice guy. I would never think of murdering people, much less following some persons orders and not thinking about it or following my conscience so it's really you know interesting times we're living in right now absolutely and i'm very i'm very grateful to to your willingness to do the research put together this podcast find the people to interview because I think it's, it's part of, a, a I believe, is a real movement of former members, especially what we call second generation, those born in these authoritarian cults, to share their stories and to destigmatize and lower the temperature for the fact that people can be in these authoritarian cults and get out and be really nice people and successful citizens and really interesting. And, and make great contributions like yourself.
1: Yeah. One of the things that, you know, I, I, I say in the podcast, you know, I, I always am tempted when I'm in an icebreaker situation to say, Hi, my name's Tricia. I was raised in a doomsday apocalyptic cult just for like shock value, right? But I, I never want to say it because the word cult has got such heavy handed, like very cringy connotations to it, right? That only stupid people or only lonely people or only like weirdos would ever be wrapped up in a cult. And when I look at, you know, who it was, who was part of, especially just my local congregation, they were very normal people. They had master's degrees and they had engineering degrees and they were, you know, well-adjusted for the most part families. And so I, I, I do think that people coming forward and telling their stories and saying, you know, this is my experience and it doesn't match all of those stereotypes that I still think very much circulate in the world about who gets caught up in high demand religious groups, especially um, that it's important for us to share our stories and to to put a different face on it.
0: Yeah, and you're contributing in your social media efforts to the hashtag I got out and I got out.org because I believe there are millions and millions and millions of us who, like you were describing earlier, Exited, put it in, in a closet, closed the closet, said, I'm done with that. But they're still carrying around the residues and shame, maybe embarrassment to say about what, what they experienced and such.
1: Or anger and- about how many years they lost to the group.
0: That's a really important point. I'm really glad to to hear you say that. I can tell you I've done a lot of work with former Jehovah's Witnesses, and especially women were second class, and men were not encouraged to get advanced degrees at all because Armageddon was coming at any moment, right? And like brilliant people who wanted to have kids, but they were told you can't have kids because it's Armageddon, right? Put your time and effort into you know, working with the group, but you're, you know, we're, we're all role models say, we can be successful. You know, you're not alone. And, you know, there's no shame in it. And honestly, I just see a, almost like a Renaissance happening with the cult field. Cause there's so many documentaries are now being produced and great podcasts that are being developed. And I think the public has a hunger to understand this. And, 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 and to dissect it, my, my gripe, of course, with a lot of these documentaries is they're not going into the mind control, this, the, the use of hypnosis, the deception, the indoctrination of phobias, the, the loaded language that uh, are installed in people. And um, so for me, I went back to, and got my doctoral uh, uh, diploma doing research on undue influence and in the law because I realize the law is out of date with what we understand about social psychology and, and neuroscience even, um, and we want justice. And if somebody is enslaving someone else psychologically in order to exploit them financially, at the very least that's trafficking, and that is a crime. And trafficking is fraud, force, or coercion. And with with my population, Fraud, fraud, and coercion rings the bell. Not all of the cults I work with, you know, they, they have violence and guns and that sort of thing, like a Patty Hearst who's kidnapped into the SLA. But um, so anyway, I'm just uh, so grateful to you for your efforts, and I, I just want to tell our listeners that you actually contacted me to interview me for your podcast, and you said. I learned about you from an ex-member who said, you got to check out the bite model and this guy Hassan. And then we were chatting on and on. And I said, of course, I'll do a podcast. But by the way, can you help me with my social media since you are? And you said, I'm going to finish teaching soon so I can give you some time. And, And I'm very grateful for you being willing to help. Help, well uh, I'm so glad that there. I've
1: gotten to know you and and I appreciate your work I you're certainly one of the the leading thinkers on on cult mentality the bite model is it has helped so many people that I've talked to who mm-hmm. knew about it before I ever you know came to it or discovered it and they and they do they credit that Particular model um, for helping them think through their own situations and to realize, oh, yeah, my my organization does do all of these things, and maybe mm-hmm. I really need to look at it differently. So,
0: yeah, it's been a I, pleasure. I'm I'm paying it forward because my family rescued me. I was deep in in the rabbit hole. And and that's also given me a lot of confidence that I can help anybody get out. Because if I could get out, anybody can. I was that far gone. I was literally called the model member by Sun Myung Moon directly, and it was because I would kill on commands. You know, you want me to chop off my finger? Give me the the cleaver, and I'll, you know, <laughs> chop it off to show my my obedience and faith. You know, it's crazy. Um, so as we're wrapping up, any last thoughts that you would like to share with our listeners?
1: I think the only thing that I would say, and this is something that, that you have said before, and I think it's a really valuable lesson, which is that every high-demand organization, whether it's you know a, a Bible cult like I grew up in or something political like the Moonies, it's not all 100% negative there are some really wonderful and positive things that come out of this really tight sense of community. Mm -hmm. And I think if we can recognize those things, it makes our relationship to that experience more healthy, more balanced, um, that you don't need to, to quote unquote, you know, throw the baby out with the bathwater, that if you can learn to say, actually, but I learned this thing, right? Like I learned international travel or I made, uh, you know, we had a big public speaking program a Mm -hmm. Toastmasters Club, right? And that's helped me in my career as a professor. Um, There are things that we could take away from it that were really positive and really wonderful. Um, And if we can hold on to those things and then just kind of figure out how to deal with and dispose of the rest, I think it it makes that transition out and your, your, your your life uh, a lot more a lot more wonderful.
0: You are very wise and I'm very grateful that you're bringing this up because in fact there are very valuable life experiences that I learned in the moonies that I took out with me. I was a shy introverted poet when I went in and within a few months I was giving talks to a large group of people extemporaneously. And I learned that in the Moonies and that, you know, when I got out, I was like, I used to be able to talk, you know, I could get up and not freak out. And so the idea is to not just take the whole thing and put it in a closet, but really sift through what what the golden, you know, memories are and the experiences um, and integrate it as a part of your life. So I'm really grateful that you said that. And, um, you know, it's not a sin to want to be part of a community of like-minded people. We like being part of groups. A lot of people do. I'm an introvert, but I, I, I belong to a Jewish temple. And have for 23 years. I like being together. I, if somebody has an illness, we bring them food. If I, when I was sick, I had cancer, they helped drive me to the hospital, and my wife couldn't do it. I like that sense of you know continuity over time with other families, and you know, and I, I hear from a lot of former members who are you know like hardened atheists, like extreme. Like, don't talk to me about, oh, I can't see the Bible anymore. I can't, you know, and it's like, come on, like, you know, get over it. Or somebody tells me, Steve, I loved meditating, but now that I've left TM, I I don't know what to do. I said, there are a thousand other types of meditation you could be doing. (laughs) You don't have to use the fraudulent mantra that they gave you. And, and they're like, I can? And I'm like, yeah, you're free now. You're an adult. You get to choose how you want to live.
1: That's one of the things though, that I will say that I find frustrating about American culture is that if you are not religious, if you don't go to a church it is, as an adult, incredibly difficult to find community. I feel like a lot of the organizations that used to be around in the 50s um, don't really exist anymore, or they're not as, you know, you think about the, like the Lions Club, right, or the the VFWs. You know, they used to be really robust organizations, and young people just aren't in those, and even middle-aged people are not really a part of those. And so it's very difficult to find a shared sense of community that exists outside of a religious organization. And so I think a lot of people who leave, you know, organizations like mine, that's the thing they miss. They don't they they might not miss anything, but they they damn well miss that sense of community because it's incredibly hard to replace.
0: Yeah, and having followers on social media is not the same as having real friends that you can sit down and schmooze with and hang out with and
1: you or, know. you know, bring you soup if you're sick. Yeah, no yeah. social media followers is going to do that.
0: Yeah, a thousand percent. So thank you very much for uh, coming into my life and asking me to contribute to your wonderful podcast. Really, folks, check out this podcast. And if people want to contact you, is there an email address you want to share? Or is there a website? We, we're going to do a blog with the video of this and then we can add links. But just for the podcast listeners, is there a way for people to...
1: Yes. So if you want to reach out to us, you can do it social media. So we are at worldwide pod 11 on both Twitter and Facebook we have an Instagram account which is probably our most active community that is just worldwide pod and then we also have an email address is uh, worldwide pod 11 at gmail.com
0: Great thanks so much. have a great day.
1: Thank you Steve.
0: Thank you. bye bye. That's it for today's episode of the Influence Continuum. I've been your host, Dr. Stephen Hassan. Theme music for the podcast by Nasser Malik. To read in-depth articles about influence, both positive and negative, visit my website at freedomofmind.com. On Twitter and Instagram, my handle is at cultexpert. If you want to develop a comprehensive understanding of these topics, I highly recommend my books, Combating Cult Mind Control, Freedom of Mind, and The Cult of Trump, in that order. These books are a culmination of 45-plus years of experience and will really help you fully grasp the complex web of undue influence. I also have a a three-and-a-half-hour online course titled Understanding Cults, The Basics, which can be found on my website. If you're a former cult member, I congratulate you on your bravery, invite you to use the hashtag IGotOut, and join our online community at igotout.org. Thanks for listening, and remember, love is stronger than mind control.